to all of us. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13. Let me give a little background before I read the text. Um, If you're familiar with ancient Israel at all, you know ancient Israel had a lot of enemies. But one that was a constant thorn in their side was a group called the Philistines. You ever heard of them? The Philistines. And they could never really kind of shake the constant, a matter of fact, if you were in our Ezekiel study, uh, it referred to the Philistines and Israel as the old hatred. That's how much they just did, despised each other. And you know, all the way back, you're familiar with, with David and Goliath, which actually would come after this text. Uh, this is before. Uh, David doesn't become king until sometime later. Uh, but everyone in Israel loathed the Philistines. And the Philistines inflicted a lot of pain terrorism, if you will, constant anxiety, attacks, sometimes subjugation completely where they were kind of under tributary. Um, And so this kind of went on for years. And then they started to have uh, a period of peace under uh, Samuel. Samuel, of course, they didn't have a king, uh, but Samuel being a judge of the people, you know, they had a measure, but not complete not complete rest, and there was still a lot of Philistine infiltration, uh, areas that were under subjugation, areas that there was under constant harassment or threat. You know, like, you know, it's hard to sleep when you think your door might be beaten down, uh, that kind of thing. So there was the, there's this constant um, just kind of uh, dark cloud over uh, Israel. Now, the reason why, for the most part, was Israel's own sin. Because instead of actually being yielded to the Lord, they wanted one foot in the world and one foot with the Lord. Sound familiar? People kind of want, I want God's protection, I just don't really want to hang out with God. Right? I want to be at peace, but I don't really want to serve or live for the Prince of Peace. And so there's a, there's a problem there, but nevertheless, Israel uh, in the ancient times was dealing constantly with the Philistines. Small battles, but they didn't have, uh, Israel at that time actually didn't even have, uh, the scriptures tell us at that time, they didn't even have uh, any kind of blacksmith trade. Uh, the Philistines had cornered the market on blacksmith uh, and metalworking. They were actually, the Philistines were experts at metalworking. At this time, Israel had been kind of removed from the weapon-building process. Now, if you don't have adequate weapons, it's hard to fight your enemy. And so the Philistines had better weaponry, they had the blacksmith, and they would sell metal and tools to Israel, but they would only give them very limited amount of weapons. And if they wanted to buy like a hoe or things like that, they would pay top dollar for that. So they had them under an economic yoke, a military yoke, uh, a mental anguish yoke, if you will. All these things were taking place at the same time. And for many of those reasons, instead of actually looking to the Lord, the children of Israel said, if we, had a, if we only had a king, a king would solve everything. You know, even America, people are always looking for one man to solve their problems. If we only had the right political leader, if we only had the right this, if we only had the right that, and none of those things uh, are really the answer. But so the Israelites, they were, um, they were dealing with uh, just the constant pressure. They couldn't, they, they couldn't have the same equality of weaponry and things like that uh, that the Philistines had at that time. And they begin 
uh, to say in the previous chapter, give us a king. And finally, the Lord relents and Samuel anoints Saul. Saul becomes king. Now, Saul was a pretty, you know, he was a big strapping guy. You know, uh, head, he was a head taller than everybody else. Uh, he looked the part. And he actually was fairly uh, successful in battles. Uh, he was on the bravery scale. You would call him brave, but you wouldn't put him as high as like a David or his own son, Jonathan, who were far braver. You know, it, in rank, some of you here, hate to say it, are probably braver than others here. Hopefully, your bravery is due to more spiritual strength, and the more you know the Lord, uh, the more brave you become, more courageous you become. The Apostle Paul was a courageous man because he was deep in his walk with the Lord. And so uh, Saul had, early on, he started out right. So I just wanted to give you a backdrop as we look at the 13th chapter. So if your Bibles are open, 1 Samuel chapter 13, hopefully that gives you uh, an understanding of the text. And starting in verse 1, I'm going to read verses 1 uh, through uh, the middle of 15, the middle of verse 15. Starting in verse 1, Saul reigned one year when he had reigned... uh, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. Now, this is the first time uh, in a long time that Israel has a standing army. So Saul stands up, uh, actually a full-time army, not a volunteer, but this is the this will be the beginning of a full-time army, and then later that would be much larger under David and, and uh, larger under Solomon as well. But starting in verse 3 here, And Jonathan, who Saul's son, attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. So they had an outpost or a garrison in Israel, uh, basically like a fort. And Jonathan attacks it, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. Now again, if you're familiar with ancient Israel... Uh, well, if you're familiar with Israel's map today, you know that uh, you look at the coast of Israel and you've got the Mediterranean on the west side and what today is called the Gaza Strip, where the uh, Palestinian Authority kind of uh, rules that area. The Gaza Strip was Philistia at that time. Uh, no one really knows for certain, certain where the Phil- uh, Philistines came from. Uh, all kinds of ancient texts have, have attributed to uh, islands in the Mediterranean, some say the Middle East, some say Africa. That no, no one has a definitive answer where the Philistines came from, but by the time they got there, they were problematic for Israel. Well, they had outposts or forts that they had put inside of Israel's land, and that, again, is to intimidate, subjugate, and to just kind of you know, let them know, hey, our presence is here, and we're still kind of in quasi-control. So Jonathan attacks one of these forts, or the garrison in Geba. Jonathan goes up against it. He doesn't wait, he just does it. And verse 4, now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked, notice it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. Now some ancient Renderings believe this is 3,000, uh, I'm sorry, um, yes, 3,000 uh, chariots along with 6,000 horsemen. But whether it's 3,000 chariots or 30,000, the Masoretic text uh, seems to indicate it was 3,000 chariots. But whether it's 3,000 or 30,000 plus 6,000 horsemen, and here's 
the, the clincher, and people as of the sand, the seashore, and multitude. So a huge army, far, far outnumbering on orders of magnitude, 10, 20, 30 times the size of Israel's army. Now think about it. If you're, if you're uh, a commander and you're outnumbered 10, 20, 30 to 1, you're going to be afraid, naturally. So they were far outnumbered, and they came and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, look at verse 6, the, uh, the men of Israel saw they were in danger, for the people were distressed. They had high anxiety through the roof. And then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and pits. They just start running from their homes to hide anywhere they could, running for their lives. Verse 7, and some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan, which is heading east, uh, to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. The whole country is petrified. It would be like what happened in Chattanooga a few weeks ago happening all across the country and everybody being in the same fear that the people in Chattanooga were in that afternoon. The whole land felt that way. They all didn't know what was around the corner. When would the Philistines with this massive army attack? Verse 8, and then he waited seven days, Saul, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. As soon as he was done, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, that I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Uh, from now on, from, uh, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again for gathering us here this morning. We know each and every person here was brought here by your providence and by your design. And we pray now that you prepare our hearts that you use your word to speak and minister to each person as they need. And Lord, that uh, you would give me, not my words, but uh, your words would flow by your Holy Spirit. Fill this place, Lord. uh, Use it to challenge and to change our lives. Lord, bring peace where there's not peace. Bring rest, uh, bring cleansing, bring conviction. You know what each person needs. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I don't think I have to convince any of you when you hear you know, what happened here. Um, you think about what a volatile, rough time it was in Israel at that moment. But I don't think I have to convince any of you that we're living in interesting times ourselves, aren't we? Uh, volatile times, stressful times. Uh, for our brothers and sisters, uh, our Christian brothers and sisters around the world that are in the Middle East or that are in North Korea and then in Central Africa, their stress levels, what they're under, is really outside of our comprehension. I'm pretty sure you realize that the majority of those that are in America with 
positions of power and influence. Most of the infrastructure in America with power and influence, I'm sure most of you realize that whether it be government, whether it be the court system, whether it be education, whether it be the business world, the entertainment industry, the media, that most of those that are in positions and power, not all, thank the Lord, not all, but most are in opposition to God and are in opposition to God's people. That's the reality of the day in which we live in. And many people, and increasingly many more, are not so fond of people who hold to the Scriptures. So if you love the Lord, a lot of people are less and less fond of your love for the Bible, of the nation's Judeo-Christian heritage, things like that. To add to the climate of the culture, you have your own and my own ongoing personal needs, because we still always have our personal needs, right? We have difficulties, we have responsibilities, we have times of grief, things like that that can weigh on us. We have the things that are just kind of, uh, the, the life things that just kind of kick you in the shins on a regular basis, right? Anyone have any car repair bills this year? I've had them twice this summer. And I don't have a car payment because both our cars are more than six years old, but it feels like a car payment when you get some of these things, right? Those are always fun. Anyone spent money on the kids' clothes this year? Or education? Or youth sports? or birthdays, or maybe an anniversary. None of those things are free. And don't forget that Christmas is now less than six months away. You get to prepare for that. And I'm sure that your vacation wasn't free. And how about any unexpected health care cost? They all seem unexpected these days. And I don't know about you, but did your premiums and deductibles go down? They, they heading south or probably north? Have you, experienced, have you experienced the incredibly shrinking grocery cart? Anyone had that? Uh, I.e. that you have more is on the debit card than used to be on the debit card, and somehow less is in the cart, and even less in the box. They're getting tricky about, you know, 12-ounce Triscuit, 10-ounce Triscuit. You know, what is gonna, next time it's going to be like the little cereal boxes you used to buy that are about this size. They can't fool you eventually. And I'm guessing none of you got a call from the bank to pay off your mortgage, that they just felt like uh, doing something nice for you this week. These things uh, don't even include the regular stresses of life and ongoing health issues, family issues, time management, home maintenance, chores, and those are just to name a few. And oh, by the way, in the middle of all that, we're still commanded as Christians to still be filled with joy and to love and serve other people. With all that going on, we're still called to be filled with joy, to love and serve other people. It's not easy, but still what we're called to do. Now, Israel's response to their own pressures, and they were under some intense pressure here, and it was real. Obviously, when an army that's 10, 20, 30 times your size is amassing to slaughter you, it's worse than a bad day at the auto repair shop. It's worse than just having... Uh, aches and pains. It's worse. This is, this is, they want to completely decimate, not necessarily annihilate, but decimate the country in a major, major way beyond where they were actually at. Well, how do they respond? Well, a bunch of them begin crawling into caves, running away from their homes, running away from the stability of where they live, crawling into caves. Others just pack and leave, crossing the Jordan. Let's head east. I don't know about you, but do you ever feel like crawling into a cave? Packing and leaving, 
When people lose change of scenery, anytime pressure comes, I need to move. I need to change the scenery. We've all been there. We have those times where we feel that way. Now, I promise you this. Despite the text and my opening thoughts, I did not come here to depress you or raise your anxiety level. I'm drawing a parallel that over 3,000 years ago, the people were distressed, and understandably so. You can, you can understand why they were distressed. And 3,000 years later, we can be distressed as well. Unless we learn, I'll say that again, unless we learn to fully trust the true and living God. It, it's something that takes years of being a believer. You might think you've aced it, and the following week you find out you really didn't. Learning to fully trust the true and living God. So how do we do that? And what does the Lord want us to learn? Well, that's what I want to take a look at here this morning, 1 Samuel 13. If you're taking notes, I've titled uh, this morning's Bible study and message, A Matter of Trust. A Matter of Trust. What do we want to do? What, um, what we want to do is respond to life in a manner that God prescribes, not how Saul does it. You want to respond the way God prescribes, to wait on the Lord, to trust in the Lord, to believe that what he said will come to pass. You do not want to respond the way Saul does. Now, poor Saul, he becomes a bad model for us in many ways. But we can learn a lot. You know, I, don't, I remember growing up and you know, seeing different mistakes that people made. And after I got saved, uh, I would say, man, I'm, I'm not happy that this happened in our family or this you know, thing you know, maybe in the past, but I can learn from it not to do that the same way. And the things that are in the Scripture are for our admonition that we would not follow what Saul does here. We don't want to react the same way that he does. He was leaning to his own understanding. He was leaning in his own, uh, he was kind of following his own solutions instead of holding fast in obedience to the Lord. Now Saul, like us as believers, like us as born-again Christians in our community, Saul is supposed to represent the Lord to those around him. It's been true, you're the only Bible some people will, been said, you're the only Bible some people will ever read, right? You've all heard that? That's true. And so Saul was to rightly represent the Lord to those around him. And in his particular case, thousands were looking to him for leadership, guidance, and what do we do kind of answers. Thousands were looking to him. The whole country was looking at him. He was the king. He was the leader. The higher you are in responsibility, the greater it is for you to rightly represent the Lord because you have a bigger, wider impact on more people. But we only pass on to others what we ourselves are walking in. So Saul can only pass on the depth of his spiritual walk. That's what we're going to pass on to people. The depth of our walk is the depth of what we'll pass on. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to look at five uh, areas in the text where Saul had the opportunity to trust the Lord, and we do as well today in our lives. And the first thing I want to look at, um, it might kind of uh, seem oddly placed here, but it's in the text. And that's, uh, if you're taking notes, proper recognition. And this isn't really dealing with kind of the pressure. Um, it, could, 
It could deal with peer pressure because people all feel the need to be respected, to be trusted, to be looked up to. And one of Saul's problems is he was overly concerned with how he was perceived by other people. It's a good thing to care what people think. It's a bad thing to be fixated on what people think about you. Does that make sense? There's a balance. It's good to actually, you know, tuck your shirt in and look presentable. But it's, it's a bad thing to be just constantly, what do they think about me? What do they think about me? Are people looking up to me? People really kind of respect me. All those kinds. And Paul, I mean, Saul was overly concerned with these things. How do people think about him? Did they understand how brave and how in charge he was? He wanted a name for himself. And that always becomes problematic. It becomes problematic in Jesus' letter to the churches where Sardis wanted a name for itself. You know, I want to see our church grow with souls saved and people discipled. But God forbid we ever care about our name, that people know our name, that people know anything. The only name that we should care about exalting is Jesus Christ. The name Calvary Chapel is not that relevant at all, other than a meeting place. The name of the Lord is what matters. And so it can become problematic and will become problematic if you want to make a name for yourself. And Paul wanted a name for himself. And this is really problematic if you're representing the Lord. And Saul was representing the Lord. And we're called to represent the Lord. John 12, 43, it says, For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. This was the Pharisees. They always wanted recognition. Proverbs 27, 2 says, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. Other people. If God wants to give you praise, let it come through other people, but don't run a campaign for it. We have to ask ourselves, do we strive for recognition, or are we okay with the Lord recognizing us as he sees fit? One thing I've learned about the Lord is he might not recognize what you're doing to other people for a long period of time. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with the Lord, the one patting you on the back and saying, I'll take care of all that stuff. You just keep laying up treasures in heaven. That's what Saul needed to be focused on. If he takes care of that, the other stuff's going to take care of itself. Do we give credit to other people where it's due? Well, Saul, it says in verse verse 3 that Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines. Remember, Jonathan was his son. Jonathan loved the Lord, but he was intensely courageous because he had great faith. Him and David become great friends. Remember, everyone's petrified of Goliath except for who? David. Well, David and Jonathan were like kindred spirits. Both of them, they were more like Caleb and Joshua. Remember the spies are sent out? Tens of never. They'll smoke us. They got bigger guys than us. Caleb and Joshua said, we can take them because the Lord is so much bigger. That was Jonathan's heart. That was David's heart. But that was not Saul's heart. Saul's heart was he would count the, he would do the bean counting, do all the facts and figures. You know, can I take this guy or not? That kind of thing. And, and that wasn't Jonathan. Jonathan goes and attacks the garrison. But it says in verse 4, now all Israel heard that Saul attacked the garrison. Saul didn't attack the garrison. But Saul owns the media and the press. And so the credit goes to who? Not Jonathan. It goes to Saul. Saul did not attack the garrison. Do we seek to give other people credit for what they're doing? Do we seek to recognize and build up others? I had referenced uh, about a month ago 
an article I'd read, um, a business magazine article, is written by Jeff Hayden, writer for Speaker, Ma- uh, Speaker, Mag- Speaker Inc. magazine, that is. And I gave a couple of them, but here's a couple of the, on the list. I think I gave uh, numbers one and two, but here's number four and seven. And, th- and this is something that it was written in a business magazine, but we as Christians, this is straight, straight out of kind of the character of what Christians should have. Saul should have been saying, Jonathan has attacked, and let's, let's build him up in the faith. Let's pray. Let's pray that the Lord gives us all the success, but no, Saul takes success. Uh, number four on this list uh, that Jeff Hayden writes, number four is uh, these are people that we love to work with. If people that love to work with you, uh, if you have people that work that love to work with you, they'll love it because you're not constantly seeking attention. You actually really give proper recognition. You build other people up. And number four on his list of nine things that people, um, of people that uh, love to work with you would say, number four, they never fail to share or even give away credit. And he writes, the people we love to work with know the best glory is reflected glory. They step back from the spotlight. They let others take credit for hard work. They let others receive the praise for a job well done. That's a good question for us Christians. Do we, do we constantly thank other people and give credit away? Saul was trying to uh, cre- uh, create and hold on to an image. Number seven, it says, they never actively seek validation. Everyone likes praise, but some people need praise. Some people need constant attention. They need constant validation that they are smart, capable, and charged, successful. In fact, they need to know they are smarter, more capable, and more successful than everyone else. Don't you love being around that person? In a meeting, or at the family reunion, or even a church gathering, everything else, that we want to be not constantly validating our value, our abilities, but just love and give away credit and put a arm around someone and say, that's awesome job you did. And if they want to write you a thank you note or something, praise the Lord, but you don't seek it. Number two, handling pressure. We looked at uh, Saul had an issue here with proper recognition. Instead of giving it away, he was trying to uh, have the recognition for himself. Uh, Next thing we see in the text, handling pressure. Well, this makes a lot of sense because when you have a massive army coming against you, you're going to feel the pressure. Saul feels the pressure because he has the command of the troops. He has the new standing army. But the people think, doesn't matter if we have a standing army or not, we have no chance against an army that has the sand of the seashore. That's the way it looks to them from a distance. And all the chariots, all the horses. Remember, they have far superior weaponry. They're like, we're dead. This is worse than a stock market crash. This is worse than you know, uh, 20% unemployment. This is worse than you know, everybody uh, you know, seeing high inflation or anything else and all the pressures and all the kind of things that are in the backdrop of our own nation and economy. You've probably read the articles, this could happen anytime, this could happen anytime. Those things are all true. They, those things could happen. But this was something that was happening. Not something that could happen. They really did have an army advancing against them. And so it's a high-pressure situation. But taking it back to our time, in a sense, all of life, think about those of you that are up in years now. I was watching some of the other day at, uh, on TV, and, um, and I heard the guy say, you know, I don't just want to say this about the golden years. They ain't so golden. You know, uh, when things start breaking down. But, but one thing you do, the older you get, you have more perspective. And one thing you'll find out 
uh, the longer you go, is that life is a nonstop pressure situation. Right? Because life never really stops pressing until we get to heaven. We live in a day and age where people are crumbling emotionally and physically under the pressures of life. Even though we have more stuff, more net worth, uh, more than most people around the world, Americans, including American Christians, are under constant stress, constant anxiety. There's a lack of personal peace, even among Christians. So I saw many today, they need prescriptions to survive. Uh, They're constantly looking up for the newest homeopathic remedy, more books, more massages, more vacations, more entertainment leisure. If these things can give peace, they can calm the nerves. And yet, they still have no more peace or rest than before they've tried just about everything else. Christian, we actually have the answer and solution. Isn't that good to know? We actually have the answer and solution. It doesn't require getting a raise. It doesn't require, you know, kind of reading the latest, greatest, here's how you handle these things. It's in your hearts if you're saved by the Holy Spirit. If you're saved, it's in your hearts by the Holy Spirit, and it's in your hands right here. It's called the living Word of God. It's better than medication. It's better than armies. It's better than a great economy. Jesus didn't need any of that to give peace to anyone he encountered. Amen? That's what he brought. He's the prince of peace. I remember the first time Sam Nadler, you guys have heard Sam, one of my mentors, Messianic Jewish pastor down in, uh, down in Charlotte, he, he kind of explained that the way that word prince of peace means that Jesus can either turn the spigot on or turn it off. And if you want him to turn the peace spigot on, which most of us do, he's the only place to do it. He's the only one that has the controls of that knob. I believe the way the church responds and shines while the enemy ratchets up stress and restlessness will be a tremendous light to those around us in the days in which we live. This one thing will be a tremendous light. People say, how in the world are you so calm and have peace? You think, that, you think that things are the way they are now. As history moves forward, as time moves forward, things could get far more tense. And Jesus said they will. The birth pains, those of you that are women, you know that the birth pains get more intense, sharper when you get closer to the end. And these things will happen. In the world, their response is they just need another trinket to make them happy. But here's the thing. Even after the world gets every single thing at once, it still won't have peace. It still won't have peace. We, how many Hollywood celebrities have to have commit suicide to people to realize that if you could have the best shrink, best psychiatrist, seven homes on every continent, all the money you could possibly want, fame, popularity, people patting you on the back nonstop telling you how great, beautiful, and amazing you are, covers on the magazine, and you still have no joy, happiness, and you commit suicide... And here's what Satan says, well, that's the rare exception, right? But it's not. The first thing we have to do in moments of crisis, fear, anxiety, distress, and even ongoing issues in our life, the first thing we have to do is go back to the promises of God. There's no substitute. I've been reading a little book um, by Rand Hummel. Uh, you can look it up. Uh, it's called Fear Not. 
It's a little tiny book. He says take three years to go through it if you have to. And all it is is meditating on certain scriptures that God has given to all of us as a balm, as a backstop, as an encouragement through whatever you're going through. There's tons of scriptures that God has given for us to rest our head on like they're a pillow. Because anything else you try and rest on doesn't work. The promises are in his word. They're in the scriptures. You know Philippians 4. I did a message three months ago on this. Remember the message I did on personal peace. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I'm going to read it again. Be anxious for nothing. Well, certainly this qualifies. Army of 300,000 are advancing. No, anxious for nothing. But in everything, here it is again, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, learning to pray on a just kind of talk to God, but also have set aside time. Supplication, remember we talked about, is not just praying through the day, which is great to do. Pray when you're talking to the Lord, driving or whatever. But supplication is to take time away. The proverbial old times, they call it the prayer closet. Right? That's supplication. With thanksgiving, learning to thank God all the time. Thank Him for blue skies. Thank Him you can still see. Thank Him for your family. Thank Him for your church. Thank Him for whatever He's given to you. Food, shelter. He'll guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He goes on to tell us what we should be thinking and meditating on. Those things are noble and pure. You know, Satan wants us, he wants us with earbuds in and our eyes glued to our smartphones and, you know, just constantly consuming stuff that really don't add peace. They just kind of ratchet up this kind of restlessness. That's why the Bible says, be still. And know that I'm God. Quiet our hearts. Quiet our minds. The Bible tells us to fix our eyes on Christ. This is how the Lord wanted Israel to stop and not run to the caves, not run across the Jordan, but to stop and pray. Because God had done some amazing things for Israel in the past, and really he's done some amazing things for you and I in the past, but we forget them, don't we? We forget, like David later said, I killed a lion, I killed a bear. Actually, the Lord did it for him. But he can remember that. The Bible tells us, fix our eyes on Christ. Hebrews 13, 5. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you find yourself quoting those scriptures to yourself? I do. Now, he's never left me or forsake me, and sometimes I still feel like he's about to leave me or forsake me. You ever feel that way? He's never once left me or forsake me. I said, well, today he probably will. But who's speaking that? Not the Lord. It's my flesh. I was talking to Sam when he was here. I said, Sam, sometimes... 99% of me doesn't believe a certain thing that I know I have to believe this by faith. I said, but 1% of me believes it. And he said, then you hold to the 1%. That's what faith is. And you know the cool thing? When you hold the 1%, it becomes 10, 10%, 20%, 30%. God begins to expand it. But you have to hold on to it first. I will never leave you or forsake you. You can just drive down the road and requote that verse to yourself a hundred times if you have to. And I'll, I'll promise you, at some point, it'll all of a sudden, something will click in your spirit. And you'll all of a sudden believe it. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's true. The Bible tells us to meditate on the Scriptures, but very few Christians have learned to meditate on the Scriptures. Myself included, I'm learning more and more the longer I'm saved, the value of meditating on the Word of God. David wrote a lot about it. We have to have that peace poured in through the Word of God. The Lord had given through Samuel, the Lord had given through Samuel a promise 
to him and the people. And here was the promise. If they kept their eyes on him and they trusted in his word, that God would take care of them. If you have your Bibles open, look real quick uh, to the 12th chapter. All you have to do is go up a few verses. Uh, Look at verse 22. When when Samuel had anointed Saul king, to be anointed means that you had the oil poured out. Anointing was only given to prophets, priests, and kings. And they would pour the oil on the head. It would run down. You could not anoint yourself. Someone had to anoint you. I could never anoint myself to be a pastor. It's through the laying on of hands. Someone has to, you have to have godly men come and say, there is a calling. An anointing comes from God through others. Samuel had to be the one to pour the oil onto David or to pour the oil onto Saul. You were not allowed to grab oil and pour it on yourself. By the way, there's ministries around the world that have definitely poured oil on themselves and poured a lot of other stuff on themselves in the process. But Saul really was anointed, and there was a, he really was God's man if he was going to keep the right, if he was going to keep the way of the Lord. But a promise had been given. Look at verse 22 in chapter 12. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his, whose word, whose name? For his name's sake. Not for Saul's, not for Samuel, not for Moses, for his own name's sake. Because it pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it to me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. This is Samuel. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him with truth in all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you already done great thing, but if you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. You know, God gives us a straight shooting kind of, <laughs> kind of way of speaking. Doesn't God says, here's the deal. I love you. You're my people. I'll take care of you. I won't forsake you, but if you forsake me, you're on your own. Right? If you run away, then you're on your own. And so Saul had been given very specific instructions what he needed to do. Learn to fear the Lord more than our fears. Fear him more than our fears. Doubt our doubts, not our deliverer. Doubt our doubts, not our deliverer. Samuel had told him, God will not forsake you. You are his people. Don't don't stress about the Philistines. I got that under control. But if you waver and go after sin or don't obey, and and Saul won't, then you'll have a problem. Isaiah 50, 11 says, Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of a servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Even in that verse it says, who walks and has no light. There's times where we feel like there's just darkness and you still have to trust the Lord. He'll still take care of you. Oswald Chambers said, when you are in the dark, listen, and God will give you a very precious precious message. Even in the dark, God will still have us. We'll feel the presence of his hand. We'll feel the presence of his spirit. And we can trust that his word is true. Verse 22 tells it, he will not forsake his people. If you're taking notes, the next thing I want to look at is patiently waiting. Well, Saul was supposed to patiently wait for how many days? Seven days. Seven days. But it wasn't just that wait for seven days. It was wait for seven days until Samuel comes within the seventh day. Does that make sense? I'm waiting for a delivery Monday. Uh, FedEx, I have to have a delivery that's supposed to come to my house this Monday, which is tomorrow, at 3 o'clock. I can't leave at 10 o'clock and say, you guys said Monday, because they said it will come by 3 o'clock. 
Samuel said, within seven days I will come. He didn't say he'd come at three. He didn't say he'd come at two. He didn't say he'd come at ten. He said, seven days, so on the seventh day I will come to you. Saul was supposed to wait the seven days, but also not just the seven days till Samuel came. Obedience isn't, if you're taking notes, I've titled this part, Patiently Waiting. Obedience isn't obedience. It's been said that obedience isn't obedience until you do something you don't want to do. Obedience isn't obedience until you do something you don't want to do. Saul didn't want to wait. He didn't really like waiting. And yet he was told to. It becomes evident later in Saul's life that he had a real problem following precise orders from God. You and I cannot have a problem following precise orders. We need to learn to follow the precise orders of God. Because with precise orders becomes God's precise protection. You know, if you're an engineer, things being off a centimeter here and there is not just no big deal. It can be a very big deal. Saul, he kind of had a lifetime of cutting corners. What I call almost obedience. It would lead to greater sin and greater rebellion in his life the older he got. Now Saul, remember, he didn't just want deliverance from the Philistines. He also wanted, I think most of us in our life, we don't just want delivery, we want what? Victory. Deliverance alone means you're kind of back in the same boat, eventually. He wanted not just deliverance, but victory. How many of you in your lives want deliverance and victory? Both. Understand, Saul knew that God was capable of both. Did you think God's capable of both delivering people and giving victory? Or is he just good for one of the two? No, he's... Saul knew he was good for both. Saul knew God had the power to do that. He knew he had the ability to do that. But under the circumstances, Saul felt like he had waited a long time. All seven days he had waited. And in his mind, he had waited long enough. And yet he barely misses, he barely misses what he's been waiting for. Samuel's arrival and God's blessing. He misses it so close Dr. Charles Stanley has a book out right now, uh, Waiting on God. He writes in that book, uh, You will never be disappointed when you trust him to make a way for you, regardless of how your circumstances may appear. And When you make the choice to believe him, he will grow your faith in awesome ways. You have to choose to believe God, and he'll grow your faith. Say, you know, it's the seventh day, Samuel's not here yet, but I have to wait because he said, wait until I arrive. Alan Redpath said, waiting is winning. Waiting is winning. In the Christian life, you have to learn to wait on God. Psalm chapter 27, uh, verse 14 says, wait on the Lord. Listen to this, and be of good courage. Sometimes we wait, we become more fearful during a waiting period. It says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. He'll strengthen your heart. He'll strengthen your resolve. He'll give you courage in the waiting period. You won't, you know, the, the longer it clo- comes for Samuel to arrive, the more Saul feels like we're losing time, we're going to be smoked on the battlefield. Waiting for what we perceive is too long can make compromise seem reasonable. And so what happens here is uh, rather than waiting, Saul decides, I've waited long enough. It's not my role to offer the sacrifices. He was not 
a Levite. He was not of the priesthood, but he says, I know how to do this, so I will do it. Go get me the offering, go get me the sacrifice, and I'll do the job because Samuel hasn't arrived on time. He compromises. When we think we've waited too long, compromise looks reasonable, but it's not. When waiting, rather than compromise, what the Lord would have us do is to galvanize. Let me explain what I mean. Saul, without question, he had a pressing situation. And it seemed like time was dragging on and time was running out at the same time. You ever, you ever have that where time feels like it's both dragging on and running out at the same time? This is where Saul was at. He thought time was dragging on, time's running out, someone has to do something, and it's got to be me. What if, instead of him giving up and compromising and doing Samuel's job, a sacrifice which he was not authorized to, he was anointed as a king, not as a priest. So he decides he wasn't going to wait. But what if instead of compromising, he galvanized by this way? What if he gathered the people together and said, Here's what he was authorized to do. He was not authorized to do the sacrifice, but he had every bit of responsibility and opportunity to gather people and say, let's pray. Notice he doesn't do that. He could have gathered all the people and say, let's worship. He could have t- called them to worship. He could have called them to pray. And in your family, mom and dad, if there's stress and things that are affecting the family, you don't have to necessarily run out and get three jobs. To start with, you can say, let's gather together and what? Pray. That's the first thing Saul should have done, but he didn't do it. Prayer and worship. When we do that, we use the time that while we're waiting to grow and to build up and to be strengthened by the Lord. Not only our hearts personally, but when leaders call for this, in a setting, when leaders call for this, it galvanizes and unifies an entire group of people, and then everyone's faith is strengthened, as opposed to running scared. There's five benefits of waiting if we're willing to learn while we wait. Number one, we learn to pray and worship more. We learn to pray and worship more. Number two, we develop patience. James says, let patience have its perfect work. So we develop patience. Number three, we mature and improve in other areas of weakness while we wait. And don't we all have a lot of other areas we can improve on while we're waiting on the Lord? Yeah, God's, a lot of the times, the reason God has made me wait so long at certain periods of my life for certain things is because he's got ten other things that I still haven't grown in yet. Until those are fixed and I mature in them, then he moves to the next step. But that's a good thing because God doesn't put us in an area we can't handle. Number four, we become aware of others and their trials. While we're waiting, we actually become aware of what other people are going through, and then we start to minister to them instead of constantly feeling sorry for ourselves. And we find out a lot of times their situations are more taxing than ours. They may or may not know that, but we kind of will see that. And number five, we become more heavenly-minded when we recognize that we're waiting for what we're really waiting for in all of life's problems, you know, what we're, you know the thing we're really waiting for? Redemption from on high. That's why the whole earth groans for the return of who? Jesus Christ. All other crisis is because the whole world, the saved world, is waiting for their Savior. And it puts everything else in perspective when we're willing to wait and learn that. 
Saul had the opportunity, if you're taking notes, he should have been refusing temptation. But it's hard to refuse temptation once you give way to compromise, isn't it? If you're taking notes under refusing temptation, I, I saw, uh, any of you ever uh, read the Frank and Ernest cartoons? They've been around for years, but the two characters are standing before a priest, and Frank asks, how come opportunity knocks once, but temptation beats on my door every day? Opportunity knocks once, but temptation is constantly there. Now, temptation comes in a lot of different forms. The temptation for Saul was to yield and no longer wait. That was his temptation. He didn't have a temptation. It wasn't a bottle. It wasn't an immoral relationship. It wasn't to steal something. His temptation was to not wait any longer. Samuel has taken way too long and... And this is where you can, really kind of pat, you can really kind of make yourself feel like you did the right thing. After all, I did wait seven days. And he said seven days. And it is the seventh day. It's 6.01 in the morning, but it's the seventh day. Right? Samuel arrives just minutes after he gives in to temptation. The Lord would tell him, do not. I don't care. You, don't, you do not offer that sacrifice until Samuel gets here. Because God holds leaders really, really responsible. Remember when Moses smites the rock? What happened? He didn't go to the promised land because he was misrepresenting, he was misrepresenting God's given word. And, and Moses obviously loved the Lord, but you can't smite. The, the, the rock of Christ would only be smitten once, not twice, right? There was going to be a second smitten. Jesus died once. And so there was a misrepresentation, even though Moses had a right to be angry, he still didn't have a right to disobey with God. And so Saul has a, you know, it's understandable why he could yield to temptation, but it still doesn't make it right. People in, this, in, the, in our country today, they feel that their feelings make everything right. Our feelings don't make anything right. Well, I feel like I've waited long enough. When did, what did God say? Well, I know what he said. But this is what I feel. Well, I feel this relationship is right. Well, what does the Word of God say? Well, this is what I feel. It's deep in my heart. Well, the heart, the, the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. And who can know it? So don't trust your heart. How many movies you watch say, they say, just trust your heart. That's the last thing you want to trust. <laughs> trust the Word of God. Our hearts will fail us a million times. But Saul had a number of coinciding temptations. And in one move, he gave way to all of them. He was tempted to give up and to give in. He was tempted to disobey the word of God and do something that was prohibited. He was tempted to be someone he wasn't by fulfilling a role that did not belong to him. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. The Lord has not given us any temptation that is new. Someone in this world has gone through it just like you or I. As a matter of fact, millions have gone through it. And the Lord is faithful to bring us through any temptation. There's other men that would have waited because they wouldn't yield, but, but Saul did. If our eyes are focused on ourselves and our problems rather than the Lord, we're not prepared for temptation. We'll fail. Failing and compromise will often follow. 
Once we yield to temptation, we become inoculated to our real conditions. That makes sense. Once you yield to temptation, you become inoculated. You ever seen people that used to believe something that you know is true, and now their belief system's over here? Once they yield to temptation, they inoculate themselves with their own, well, this is why I believe this is now right. I used to not think this way, but now I do. Well, of course you do, because it justifies what you're doing. Once we yield to temptation, we can convince ourselves and attempt to convince others with our excuses that we're still walking correctly to God's word. This is what Saul does. Saul tells Sam, well, I, I, had you been here on time, I wouldn't have had to do it. But, and since, since we do need a sacrifice, after all, we can't face this battle without a sacrifice. You weren't on time, so I, did, I just kind of stood in the gap for you. And that's an excuse. Samuel doesn't buy it because the Lord tells Samuel, no, he should have waited. And had the, uh, Samuel says, for the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Isn't it unbelievable the close, how close people can come to having salvation forever, for example. Forever is a long time, isn't it? People will miss eternity by a fraction sometimes, just of what they cared about. Oh, I don't want to stand and give my life to Christ. What will people think? So close. It would have been established forever. But you kind of threw it away. Esau sells his birthright for what? A bowl of soup. Right? So close. You see Saul's attempt to explain himself, Samuel's sad rebuke in verse 14 to Saul's explanation and his excuse is trying to get out of why he didn't obey, why he didn't wait. He says, now the kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. We know that'll end up being who? David. David will be the man that God will pick. It's an astounding rebuke and the long-term ramifications of there's a, there can always be long-term ramifications for one brief moment of yielding to sin. There can be huge long-term ramifications. And so the Lord says, hey, stay close to me, I'll make a way of escape. Stay close to me, I'll make a way of escape. Stay close to me, I'll make a way of escape. You know, Chuck Smith, uh, Pastor Chuck used to say, God, if I ever stay in your name, strike me dead. Not many pastors will pray that prayer. Chuck prayed that and meant it for years, and God kept him pure and on uh, just just on fire for the Lord all those years because he knew that to stand close, the Lord was always going to have the way of escape. But when you say, oh, "I like just a little distance," so I can kind of decide: do I want to be? Do I want God's help, or do I want to kind of modify as needed? That's what Saul did. We come to a close. Taking notes, seeing blessings of faith. Seeing blessings of faith. He said, your, sink, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. But again, he would have established, he would have established Saul's kingdom forever had he waited, had he not yielded. And God didn't want to only establish Saul. God wants to establish you and me. Do you agree with that? That even today, I'm not a king of Israel, neither are you. 
But God wants to establish you just like he wanted to establish Saul. He wants to establish your marriage. He wants to establish your family. He wants to establish this church. He wants to establish our lives to be a living witness and testimony. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God says, you are my people? Back in chapter 12, verse 22. You're my people. That God wants to bless us. He wants to use us. But the Lord wants us to love him more than our goals our needs, our deliverance, our desired victory. See, if, if, if Saul loved the Lord more than anything else, in a sense, he doesn't even care if Samuel doesn't come and they're defeated. He still doesn't want to displease who? The Lord. And we have to get to that place where we, we say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. We have to believe that. That's why Jesus said, First thing, teach us how to pray. That's what he said. Learn to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we'll love him more than our deliverance. Yes, we need deliverance. Yes, we need God's help. But we love him first and then just trust him for how he's going to do it. We see that in the life of Abraham. He spent so much time with God, he was later referred to as the friend of God. I just have to be referred to as the friend of God. But Jesus said that. He said, I no longer call you just servant. I call you what? Friend. Genesis 15, 1, he said to Abraham, do not, uh, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Do we trust the Lord that he is our reward? This would be the heart that the Lord would see in David, a man after God's own heart, a heart for the Lord. And we need to cultivate our love and devotion to God. And when we do, when we cultivate our love and devotion to God and meditate on his word, it crowds out the fears the doubts, the compromise, the temptation, because Satan will use whatever he has to. He'll use fear, he'll use temptation, he'll use doubt, he'll use fear, stress, you name it. Whatever will work on you or me to cause us to waver, he'll do it. And if we never saw specific outcomes, if we never saw certain answers to prayer, if we never saw blessings we'd hope we'd see, would we be okay with coming to the place where God and our relationship with him is the reward Abram reached that Abraham reached that place where he actually Isaac did not matter to him as much as God did. Do you remember? God said, "Put Isaac." After all those years waiting for Isaac, what in the what is the last thing you would expect God to do? Take Isaac and put him on the altar. And Abraham said, "I'm okay with that because I love you more than I love Isaac. I love you more than what I think you need to do. How I think you're going to birth a nation." We can't try to think for God. We have to just obey and listen to God. And he'll take care of it in his timing. It might not be at 6.01 in the morning, but it'll still be on the seventh day. It'll still be when he sends his word in his time. Are we willing to trust the Lord and walk by faith? Will we take our waiting times? I'm coming to a close with this. Are we taking our waiting times as worshiping times? As prayer times? As faith times? Oswald Chambers said, God does not give us an overcoming life. He gives us life as we overcome. He gives us life as we overcome. He wants to establish us. He wants to bless us. He wants to use us for his glory. Do we trust him? And will we continue to trust him? I think we can. Amen? I think he's trustworthy. I think he wants to establish us. I think he wants to mature us to grow us and provide for us. And we don't have to worry if he hasn't shown up in the time that we think on the seventh day 
It's not a time to compromise. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father,